Grab a seat. Man, what's going on, Saw Company? How we doing? Man, how we doing? Good. That's great. Come on, it's the end of the semester. Finals are. I think. Are, who still has finals? Does anybody have finals left? Are we done with finals? Like, are we are we successfully done with? Get done with finals. Come on. That's great. That's something worth being happy about. Man, semester is coming to an end, and like. I think for y'all, that's great. For us as staff members, that stinks because it means everyone's going home. But how are you guys feeling? Like, are you excited for break? No, no one's excited for break. Not excited for break. That's good. We're going to need feedback tonight. This is, this is a little give and take. This is good. No, going home is always super exciting, right? Like, I love going home because no school, right? I didn't have any more tests. I didn't have to deal with, like, my weird classmates anymore. I didn't have to deal with the professors who gave way too much feedback on assignments. I didn't like that. Bro, you're throwing me off, dude. Man, but at the same time, going home is always super anxiety-giving as well. I wonder if anyone else can relate to that. And it's not necessarily because I, I didn't want to go home. I didn't want to be around my friends and my family back in my hometown. But it was because when I went home, I knew I was going to be on my own. Right? When I went home, my community was staying in Springfield, Missouri. I wasn't going to have Christian fellowship at home, I wasn't going to have anyone that was going to call me out on my sin. I didn't have my the group. I didn't have my city group around me. And what would always end up happening, and this isn't, wasn't my goal. This isn't what I wanted. Christmas break for me would become more of a break from Christianity than it would be from school. I'd step right back into sin patterns from high school that I developed, and I'd forget and or ignore all that God had done in and through me throughout the previous semester I would just completely ignore it like it never happened. And as soon as I got around my family and friends from high school, I was no longer this guy sold out for Christ. I was this mediocre Christian at best who didn't look all that much different from everyone around me. See, I, I did and I do love Jesus. But when I got around people who didn't or might have been a little uncomfortable with my faith or religion in general, I'd water down that faith I did have almost to the point of extinguishing it. So that, and I did that so that everyone around me wouldn't feel weird, wouldn't feel uncomfortable. And my faith would look a lot different when I wasn't around my Christian friends. And tonight, that's what I believe the Bible is, is speaking to us, is teaching us. Your faith shouldn't look different based on who you're around. It should look the exact same. And unfortunately, I think for most of us, that's not true. Right? I think... For most of us, our faith looks different depending on who we're around. And I think most people, if not everyone in this room, struggles with that mightily. See, I think we're more afraid of what other people think of us than we are afraid of being disobedient to God. And I think there's a problem with our priorities right there. And so tonight, that's what I want us to see. There's two things specifically. One, hypocrisy kills our credibility. And two, hypocrisy must be called out. And so let's talk about that, right? If you guys would look at me, we're going to go to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I posed him to his face because he stood condemned. Pause. All right, so if you see right here, this first sentence, there's conflict, right? And I'm sure some people are already starting to feel a little tightness in their chest. We're going to get through this. Conflict is okay in this situation. 
But who are we having conflict between? That's what we need to ask ourselves first. So who wrote the letter to the Galatians? Who knows? Paul wrote this letter. Great. Yep, so we have Paul. And then there's Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. Great job. Yeah, so Cephas means rock. Jesus called Peter rock. Cephas, it became his nickname. It kind of stuck. But we have Peter and we have Paul, and they're getting into it. All right, let's get back. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. All right, so we got Peter, we got Paul, and the button heads. And why are they doing that? So what we need to see here is Peter is being a hypocrite. There's these two words, hypocritically and hypocrisy. Go ahead, and if you're writing your Bible, underline those, because that's our theme for this section. Peter is being a hypocrite, but about what? So the text says that before these men came from James, these are essentially Jewish Christians, before they came to Antioch, Peter was hanging out, he was broing down, he was grabbing lunch with the Gentiles. But after these guys got here, Peter switched up, and he wouldn't be caught dead with the Gentiles anymore. He wouldn't associate with them. But again, we have to ask the question, why? But first, what is a Gentile? All right, essentially, Gentiles, to boil it down, is anyone that's not a Jew, not God's chosen people. Right? And essentially, Gentiles were viewed by the Jews as like this kind of rowdy group of unclean heathens that for whatever reason God decided he was going to give the gospel to as sort of like a second thought. And the Jews were more of these like these very uptight like religious people who went to temple and had a bunch of traditions and laws that they followed. Right? And so to kind of put it in more of our context for everyone in this room, like think of the people that grew up in the church, right? For our, for our sakes and purposes, this, these are going to be the Jews right? They, they know the traditions, they know what to do, they know the laws, they know the Ten Commandments, all those things. But then we also have the Gentiles, right? These are the people like me who didn't really grow up going to church. And if they did, it was like, you're probably sleeping or messing with your brother and your parents were telling you to shut up. That was my story. I'm a Gentile. So we have these two groups of people, right? And if you've read through the Old Testament, um, you've probably encountered a bunch of food laws, specifically if you've read through Leviticus, specifically Leviticus chapter 11, right? In Leviticus 11, there's these laws that they're relating to what animals Jews could eat and what animals Jews could not eat. And the Jews followed these laws religiously. See what I did there? Like they followed it religiously. It's a bad joke. Anyway, they followed these laws to a T, but the Gentiles did not. The Gentiles didn't because they didn't have to. They weren't Jews. These laws weren't for them. However, the Jewish Christians, they didn't technically have to follow these laws anymore either. Stick with me here. In Acts chapter 10, Peter, long story short again, he's given this vision by God of like these animals coming down on a blanket and God says to Peter, kill and eat. Essentially saying like there's no longer clean and unclean foods, right? You can now eat the same foods as the Gentiles are eating. But what's interesting is Right after this happens, Peter is sent over to a Roman. He's a Gentile. And he's sent over to him to proclaim the gospel to him. So Peter is learning two things from this, this vision, this whole scenario that's playing out. He's learning that, one, there's no longer clean and unclean foods. And two, there's no longer clean and unclean people. And this is actually super important for this section here because Peter knew this, right? He knew there were no longer unclean foods. He knew there were no, no longer unclean people that the gospel was for 
the Gentiles as well. And this is why Peter was more than fine to be sitting with the Gentiles, to be eating with them, to be hanging out. It wasn't a big deal at all. But this specifically is why Peter was in so much trouble with Paul, because he should have known better. And I think this is, this is what we need to see right here. Peter wasn't separating himself from the Gentiles because he disagreed with them theologically, right? That wasn't his problem. He wasn't breaking, or it's not because they were breaking Jewish customs and food laws. Peter stopped eating with them because he was more afraid of what other people were going to think about him for spending time with the Gentiles, right? He was more concerned with other people's opinions than doing right by these new Christians. That's what we need to see, right? And it kind of sounds like super high school, right, if we think about it, because it's essentially like Peter's, Peter's friends with multiple groups of people, pretty popular guy, but when one of these groups gets around, he completely distances himself from the other, right? And he'll probably join in, he'll probably, you know, talk some crap on this other group, gossip a little bit. But, like, the thing is, it sounds super immature, right? It's high school, this is middle school stuff, it's childish. Well, the question we have to ask is, why do we do the exact same thing? See, how often are we the ones, we the ones, Christians, we're the ones that have been growing in our faith and maturity throughout the semester, but when we go back home for break, we won't even acknowledge the work that God has been doing in us. How often are we the ones that we've had this real, tangible, life-changing experience with God, with the living God, but pretend it, would, it never happened when we get around people that might prefer the way we used to act, or maybe aren't huge fans of the whole Christian thing? See, when we go home, more often than not, we don't seek to love and serve our families. We actually ignore our Bibles and prayer because it might feel weird if we get caught doing it, like it's something we have to hide. We avoid bringing up God in our conversations, specifically with unbelievers because, I mean, if they're not, friend, if they're not a big fan of the whole Jesus thing, like, it's going to make them feel weird. And we completely avoid the people that we know are not Christians, the people that might push back when we bring up Jesus. And I think some of us are feeling this, this tension right now of like, well, then we should just avoid them, right? Because like, if they're not cool with God, if they're not cool with this whole Jesus thing, then like, why would we even be around them? But again, that's exactly what Peter was doing. Like, we're missing the point if that's our thought process because if we're doing that, we're hiding our faith from these people who desperately need it. Right? We're distancing ourselves from the hard people because we're afraid of what other people are going to think. But again, we have to keep coming back to it. Why? What's the root of this? See, I, I believe our hypocrisy is an outward symptom of a deeper root of sin. And I think the root of the problem is that we've placed the opinions of others on the throne of our heart. We've elevated other people's opinions about us to the place of, that's my identity. Whatever this person thinks about me, that's, that's true. It's gotta be true because I'm not okay if someone doesn't think I'm great or someone thinks I'm weird because now I believe that Jesus is God. But that's not... That's not the truth of who we are. See, if you, if you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you're called some very specific things. Redeemed, chosen, holy, loved. See, these aren't opinions about you. These are facts spoken over you by the God who created you. 
See, and, the, and these are truths, and they're worth basing your life on. And we cannot continue to walk out this false identity that leads to us contradicting the faith, the faith we claim that we have. And here's the point. Here's what I'm getting at. When we do this, when we live out this hypocrisy, when we refuse to actually talk about the faith that we claim that we have, it kills our credibility. No one takes our faith seriously because we aren't taking it seriously when we're away from our Christian friends. Why would, it, why would anyone actually believe that there really is something to this whole Jesus thing if we're acting like the exact same person they knew in high school? If there's no change, why would, we, why would they believe that Jesus is real, that Jesus is true? What evidence are we giving? And see, but here's, here's the thing. This is how most Christians are. This is actually the run-of-the-mill Christian that actually won't talk about their faith when it gets a little weird and uncomfortable because I'm only going to talk about it with my Christian friends, the people who actually already understand the gospel. This, this is the norm. And I, I found the study, I think it proves my point. It's by Lifeway Research, right? It's, it's a Christian researching company. And they asked around 2,000 people, 2,000 Christians, uh, a few questions about sharing their faith. Here's what they found. More than 4 in 10 churchgoers, 43%, say that they feel, quote, a, a personal responsibility to share their religious beliefs about Jesus Christ with non-Christians. And if we pause right there, 43%, it's less than half, is a pretty low number of Christians who believe that they have a personal responsibility to share their faith. 43%. So we're already not, not off to a great start. But uh, when, when they asked them, those people, the 43%, how many times they'd actually shared that faith that they claim they have, they'd actually talked to someone about Jesus Christ, 78% of that 43% said zero. They'd never mentioned their faith to someone that wasn't a Christian. About 10% said that they'd shared with one person in the past six months. And, you know, I like... I'd be willing to bet that if, if you kind of boiled it down, if you pressed in further, if you continue to ask questions to get to the root of it, of the why, why people weren't sharing their faith, why these 2,000 people weren't sharing their faith, it's because they're probably afraid, afraid of the response that they're going to get. This is the same reason why we go home and, and hit up that person on, on Snapchat or, or go to that party or fill in like whatever sin that we're doing when we go back home. It's because we're afraid of missing out. We're afraid of what other people are going to think of us if we don't. If we actually stay true to what it means to be a Christian. We're more scared of missing out of what people are going to think about us than we are of disobeying God. We're making hypocrites of ourselves. In Salt Company, we, Christians, are the ones that are doing this. Because this doesn't apply to non-believers. Right? The Christians, the ones here. Even we see this in Peter. We're being hypocrites. We're one way around our Christian friends, right? We're one way around our city groups, but a completely different way around a different group of people. And it's killing our credibility. We claim to believe that God Himself came down and died for our sins. Yet we don't act like we believe that. We don't talk about it either. And before we move on, here's the last thing I want to see. If, we, if you go back to verse 13 with me, 
And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You see, Barnabas, this guy, young guy traveling with Paul, he's supposed to be you know, really good at encouraging people. He's led astray by everyone else's hypocrisy, by the other Christians' hypocrisy. And this is another thing I think we have to see. Not only is our hypocrisy sin, not only is our hypocrisy disobedience, but it's leading, uh, leading other Christians astray too. But not only that, it's leading other non-believers astray. And this, this is actually especially personal to me because this has been my story as well. I'm not just pointing the finger at all of you. I'm pointing it back at myself. This is, this is the story of the vast majority of my life as a Christian. See, I've claimed to be a Christian. Like, I've looked the part real well in front of my other Christian friends. Led city groups. I've led D groups. I've discipled people. I've led worship. I've given sermons. But when I got around my family, my parents, my brother, my friends back at home, um, I've done just about everything I could to convince them otherwise. See, I've, I've strayed away from sharing the gospel because I was afraid of what they would think about me. I've, like, I've laughed off my sin like it wasn't a big deal and, and proved by my actions that I didn't really believe what I said I did. I am guilty of this hypocrisy just as much as anyone else in this room. I've led those people closest to me astray by my actions. Guys, by not living out our faith. We claim that we believe we're proclaiming one of a few things. Either one, the news about Jesus really isn't all that good. Two, we don't really believe what we claim in the first place. Or three, this is actually what it looks like to be a Christian. And all three of these things are lies. but there's a redeeming side to this. It has nothing to do with us. See, even though like we sometimes, to refuse, we sometimes refuse to live out our faith, we refuse to talk about it or flat out lie about it, Jesus never did. Even when you're at home this break and you've fallen back into the sin that you swore off, you'd never do it, and then when you hide it and don't confess it to your people that you told you would when you would fall back into the sin... Jesus never did that. And none of this changes the truth of what Jesus did do. See, if your faith is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, His perfection is now yours. And the best part of this is your good deeds and especially your lack thereof, do not make you any more or less eligible to receive that forgiveness bought in blood. Just like Peter's hypocrisy in Antioch didn't take away his salvation, the same is true for you. You didn't earn God's grace by living out your faith. And you're not going to lose it by refusing to do so. It's only by the blood of Jesus Christ spilled for you on Calvary that you are offered salvation. And so as we get ready to close, I want to look at one more thing. 
So we've walked through what hypocrisy looks like in Peter and in ourselves. We've seen how it kills our credibility. And so now, how are we supposed to respond when we see a brother or sister living out this in this way, living out their hypocrisy? So look at me, one more verse, verse 14. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the, truth of, with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? See, when, when Paul saw that these, these men's conduct was not in step with the truths of the gospel, he called them out on it. And matter of fact, this is actually how our whole section started here. If you look back at verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul called out their sin to their face. He didn't do it behind their backs, which I think would probably be a whole separate sermon. But when Paul saw that these guys were not living, I was like, I was going to take a drink. I was just awkwardly holding my water bottle. Just had to address that. Anyway, when Paul saw that these guys weren't living out the truth of the gospel, what did he do? Right? He brought up their sin to them in person, and he was very clear about what he was calling them out on. He said, you're demanding that these Gentiles live up to your Jewish standards when you're not living up to them yourself. He's calling them out on their hypocrisy. It's on company. Would that not be our story this Christmas break? It doesn't have to be. Live out your faith regardless of who you're around. And yes, this includes the people who know your past, the people who hate Christianity, your friends or family that may not support your faith in Jesus, and the people who just don't really care either way. Don't minimize the work that Christ has done for me, done for you. Don't take away from the truths of the gospel. And finally, have people in your corner. Have people in your corner that not, aren't just going to be there and you know pat you on the back when you're doing things. Well, have people there that will call you out on your sin to your face. That will call you forward into a life of faithfulness in Christ. These are true friends. This is what true community looks like. And I, I got to be clear on this too. This actually requires you confessing your sin. Right? Because it's, it's real easy to go home on break, fall into whatever sin, fill in the blank, and then just not tell anyone about it because no one else is there to hold you accountable. You have to out yourself. See, this is, this is a good and holy thing, right? Accountability is vital. I need it, you need it, need it, we all need it. Everyone needs accountability. And it's such a good thing. Even if it is painful to be called out, to be rebuked by, by a brother or sister in the faith. But also, on the other side of this, be faithful to be the one that's going to call out the sin in the people in your community. And I, I know for a lot of people, 
that confrontation is scary, right? It gives, it gives you a certain amount of anxiety, brings tightness in your chest. But the same principle applies that we've been talking about this whole evening. Don't let the fear of what other people are going to think about you keep you from being faithful, right? Don't let your brothers and sisters in the faith walk in their sin on their own. Call them out on it, just like I hope you would expect them to call you out on it. This, this is what genuine love looks like for each other. Love each other enough to gently and graciously address their sin to their faith. But it, it doesn't end here, right? So set rhythms in place. Like even, even before you leave tonight, get with the people in your city group or a friend you have here and commit to praying for each other every day over break. Commit to reading a chapter of your Bible every day. If you need a place to start, start with Luke 1. I'll take you right through the Christmas story. And commit to checking in each day, asking the hard questions, holding each other accountable. Don't let your friends struggle alone over break. And if you zoned out the whole time, if this is the first time you're actually paying attention to what I'm saying, focus right here. As you go home for break, may your faith be just as alive and active around your family and hometown friends as it is here in Omaha. Keep in touch with your community. And lean in on each other. Just going home can be hard. It's like I said in my intro. Going home can be isolating. Every time I went home, it was for me. And lastly, know, believe, tangibly believe that God has been moving here this semester and take that with you. Recap a couple things. We had 300 students at fall kickoff that heard the gospel preached. That's a victory. That's God moving. We had 170 plus students at fall retreat. We've seen around 15 people this semester alone give their faith to Christ. Give their faith to Christ. We've seen just about as many people be baptized. People are confessing sin, fighting shame, finding community. God is moving in Omaha, Nebraska. Take that home. Don't water that down. Because it's real, it's alive, and it's active. And please, do not forget over break that we as a staff deeply love you guys. Reach out if you need anything at all. I think most of you have our phone number. If not, just come and ask. Tune in to the Winter Breakdown. Come on. We have a podcast coming out Thursday afternoon, evening. Tune in. It's going to be great. And finally, know this. We're praying for each of you guys. Go home. Take the gospel with you. And know that you're not doing it without the support of prayer going with you. We'll see you guys in January. Let's pray. King Jesus, just thank you for, thank you for your faithfulness this semester. God, you've, you've clearly been moving. You've been saving souls. You've been breaking down walls. You've been prompting people through your spirit to confess sin, to fight shame, to step into hard stories. And God, you're not done. Lord, would we know that the same spirit that's moving here is going with us back home? And would we not fight against what your spirit is doing, Lord, but we step into that? Will we continue to walk in obedience and faithfulness and in the truth of who you are 
especially around our unbelieving friends and family. Lord, would we not just be Christians around our other Christian friends, but would we be Christians when it's hard too? Lord, it's only through your Holy Spirit that we're going to do this. Would you convict? Would you encourage? Would you empower us? Lord, thank you for stepping down, putting on flesh, living the perfect life and dying for us. Lord, thank you for rising again and giving us that resurrection power through your Holy Spirit. God, we love you. Thank you for everything you've been doing here in Omaha. It's in your name we pray.